Hello, everybody. Welcome to Women in the Word. My name's Amy Foster. Happy to be here with you today. Thanks for showing up week after week, studying God's Word with us. You know, some of you may have the kind of childhood I had. Um, I grew up going to church all the time, at least three times a week. And I have some of the richest, most beautiful truths that were planted in my heart from those early experiences. And many of those truths I remember in music. One song in particular I've been remembering a lot. Maybe you know it too. It begins like this. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart to stay. Yeah, hidden in that simple little song is the eternal identity for God's people, because at our core, we are people of joy. God has made us people of joy. Joy is the abiding, deep experience down in our hearts because we've been welcomed into the presence of God. We've been welcomed into the family of God. And joy is what overflows from our hearts so that others look at our lives and they look at our joy and they identify us as part of God's family. And joy is also what fuels each day that we live, each day waiting for the culmination of God's great plan for mankind and for the earth. So we are people of joy, and we're people of joy because of what God has already done. It's complete and it's finished. We are also people who wait because of what God is going to do, and he's told us what he's going to do. We're going to talk about waiting today, and I think, you know, as as we just use that word, we think of all kinds of things. Leaving here within an hour, we'll be waiting in lines, we'll be waiting in traffic, We'll be waiting for a repairman or the Amazon truck. I am always waiting to get skinny. That's going to happen for me someday. And on a more sobering note, maybe we're waiting for a call from the doctor's office or we're waiting to hear from that employer who's interviewed us or we're waiting for our kids to turn out right or we're waiting for our circumstances to get better. We're all waiting. Ultimately, we're waiting for the biggest thing. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and complete the work that he began to sum it all up. Jesus described this in John 14. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We're waiting for that. So we are awaiting people. And what we learn from our psalm today is that God cares how we wait. God cares how we talk to him while we're waiting. So Psalm 126 is talking to God during a waiting time. It's one of the Psalms of Ascents. And we've talked about this a few weeks ago. These were the pilgrim songs or the traveling songs. This is what the folks who who lived outside of Jerusalem, they would sing these prayers. They would sing these songs and recite these words as they were traveling up to Jerusalem, which was at a higher elevation, traveling three times a year to celebrate the goodness of God at the temple. As they were traveling to Jerusalem, they were journeying towards the temple where the presence of God was. And we share so much in common with them because our life is a journey too. We are journeying each day to experience the presence of God in our lives so we can understand the emotions of the traveling pilgrim. We can understand all the emotions expressed in this psalm right here. 
We share those emotions. We're so similar to them. We're both trusting and believing in the future fulfillment of God's promises. So from one, Psalm 126 today, we are going to learn how to pray while we wait. I want us to start with a little bit of background. I want you to understand what was happening, most likely, when this psalm was written. The author isn't cited anywhere, so we have no idea who wrote this psalm, but it's widely believed that the context for this was during the period of time when the Israelites are returning from Babylonian exile. They are returning to Jerusalem, their homeland. So let me just give you a little framework of their history. You remember they were slaves in Egypt. God rescued them out of Egypt, took them across the wilderness, and gave them their land and established them as a mighty nation. And they thrived under the judges and under King David and under King Solomon. But after that, things began to go downhill for the nation of Israel. Their worship of foreign gods increased, their disobedience and disrespect to the one true God, that also increased. The prophets spent years warning Israel, turn back to God, turn back to God, turn back to God. And because they continued in their unbelief, God lifts his hand of protection off of his family, his nation, and he allows Israel to be overrun by enemies. He allows Israel to be carried away into captivity, first into Assyria and then into Babylon. But God always promised that one day he would bring a remnant back. One day he would bring them back, he would restore them to their freedom, and he would restore them to their land. And God did that. After years of captivity in Babylon, God began bringing his people back. They came in three recorded waves. We studied this when we looked at the book of um, Ezra and Nehemiah. Those waves occurred between 538 BC and 444 BC. You might remember some of those stories. During those three waves, that was a period of 80 to 90 years. The first group that came back, they were absolutely overjoyed as they were approaching Jerusalem. They were thrilled for what God was doing. But as they reached Jerusalem, they experienced a, a sweeping mixture of emotions. There was weeping with joy that they were back in their homeland, and there was weeping with grief when they saw the destruction of Jerusalem. The beautiful city of God was not, was not beautiful anymore, and their hearts were broken over that. We know that the city walls were completely broken down with huge gaping holes in them. That leaves the nation both humiliated and unprotected. And we know that the temple, the glorious temple built with all its splendor by Solomon, it had been destroyed and pillaged. All of those uh, sacred items had been carried off as spoils of war and the fields and the vineyards that used to support the people. They'd been abandoned and neglected. The once fertile ground was now overgrown, hard, compact, dry, and completely uncultivated. They looked around at Israel and thought, there's so much work to be done. It will take so much labor. It'll take so much money. It'll take miraculous provision and favor from God to restore things. And so as they're overjoyed with the thought of coming home, they're perhaps overwhelmed by all the great work that lies ahead of them. They will have to wait for the complete restoration for their nation. This was not the glorious Jerusalem of the past. So most likely, this psalm was written in the midst of these waves of returning exiles coming back. And so this psalm, I want us to remember, the whole time we're talking about it, this is a conversation with God. 
It's a talking to God. So these are the words they're speaking to God, and we learn from them some ways to speak to God. But this conversation with God, it begins by looking back to the remarkable experience of God bringing them out of captivity in Babylon and back here to Israel. They're rejoicing in God's past work. And in these first few verses, I want you to pay attention to two specific words. I want you to look for the word when, and I want you to look for the word then. Because with those two words, we see cause and effect. We see who's doing the work and what kind of an impact it has. Both are really important. So begin reading with me in Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. That's my favorite part there. We are glad. It begins with when, when God brought them back, when God freed them from their captivity in a land far away, when God carried them back to Israel, earning them their freedom and restoring their fortune and their property. It was all God's work. It was God's activity, it was God's energy, and it was beyond their wildest dreams. It's as if they're walking around Jerusalem saying, are we asleep? Are we dreaming? Can you believe this is true? I don't know if they fully expected ever to be back in their home again. God did what only God could do. His activity was the when. God was the change agent. He was the source of everything good that happened. And then we see the then, the response. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and shouts of joy. Have you ever been so deliriously happy that laughter, joy, tears, whatever just bubbles out of you uncontrollably? I've done it before. One of my best friends witnessed it, and she doesn't tell people about it very much because it wasn't pretty. Um, But sometimes that happens, and we understand that's the experience that's being described here. And I love the writer. He's not rushing through this memory, this reflection on their joy. He's taking great time to remember the joy and talk to God about the joy, these mighty acts. And he specifically notes three unique elements of this joy. The first is then their mouths were filled with laughter. And this is an element of fullness. He's saying their joy was full here. So as we talk about full, I want you to imagine a cup of water. And I want you to imagine pouring a little bit more water and pouring water all the way to the top so it can't hold a single more drop of water. We're not talking about just a little bit of happy We're talking about the fullness of joy. And fullness means the space can't hold one more drop. Every crevice, every void, every opening has been completely filled. It would be impossible to contain anymore. That's the joy that they have here. That's the fullness of joy. It's all they could ever hold. But this joy is so abundant that they can't hold it all. It starts spilling out. It can't be contained. And their joy that they're experiencing with God really turns into public praise. It's public praise. Then their joy is expressed. It's expressed to the nations around them. Now, I thought it was interesting. The author doesn't say our hearts and our minds were filled with joy. We would expect to see that. Instead, he says our mouth, our tongue is filled with joy. That's no accident, because what do we do with our mouth and our tongue? We speak, we express. 
This is a joy that is so full, it must be expressed. And that's exactly what happens. And when they express, then their joy is also observed. And we get this remarkable little section here where it tells us the non-Israelites who lived around them, they see it and they marvel and they recognize it. The Lord has done great things for them. This is an outstanding opportunity for them as their joy is observed. The people who don't know God get to see God up close, don't they? And right away, we can tell they are learning things about God that they didn't already know. First, they're learning this one true God. He isn't aloof, napping up in heaven. He's concerned. He's paying attention. He's acting. This God is involved in the events of the world and his people. And they're also learning that this God, he is good. He does great things. He does things that bless his people and fill them with joy. So we have to notice here, God's being glorified among his own people, but he's also being glorified among people who don't know him. He's being glorified in the earth. And this just reminded me, the the Westminster Catechism states that the chief aim and purpose of man is to enjoy and glorify God. And we believe that is true. Our purpose is to enjoy and glorify God. And that's exactly what's happening right here. God gives them joy. And as they experience that joy, as they praise God for that joy, he is glorified in the whole earth. It made me just delighted in God to realize he doesn't just give our life a purpose, but he gives us exactly what we need to fulfill the purpose. He provides the joy that we need so that we can glorify him. That makes me marvel. And this is almost like a little cheering match. We've got spirit. Yes, we do. Going back and forth. The non-believers are marveling. Look what God has done. And you know what Israel says back? Yes, it's true. God has done great things for us. And we are glad. We are glad. The statement, we are glad, switches from the past tense to the present tense. They're not talking about the past anymore. They're talking about what they're experiencing right now in this moment. Because of what God has done, we are perpetually experiencing joy and gladness. Because of what God has done, we have an identity of joy, an identity to be people of joy and gladness, all because of what God has done. So they begin by rejoicing in their past history, what God's done, and now they're rejoicing in their new identity. And this is our identity today. I think joy and happiness sometimes gets confused. I know I tend to confuse it. Here's a simple way I distinguish them. Joy is a heavenly thing. It's a heavenly thing. That means it only comes from God and it comes from heaven. So we might experience new jobs, new health, new houses. Those are good things, but they aren't heavenly things, are they? And we don't live very long before we realize those things wax and wane. They come and go. They aren't constant. They are earthly things that fluctuate. Earthly things bring happiness, but happiness isn't constant. Only heavenly things bring joy. Joy is a deep, abiding, constant, not fluctuating experience. And it's experienced because the work God has done, it's not fluctuating. God's work is constant and it is finished. 
So I want you to look at some of the verses that we have in Ezra and Nehemiah that also talk about this experience when the captives are returning from exile. And and I want you to look specifically at their joy, not their happiness, but their joy. Look at Ezra 6.22 on your verse sheet. And what they're talking about here is they have come back to Jerusalem and started practicing their religious festivals and feasts again. They hadn't been practicing those before. And so Ezra 6.22 says, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. And what I want you to note there, the feast didn't make them joyful. The return practices didn't make them joyful. The Lord made them joyful. He's the when. He is the source of the great joy. Then look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah 12, 43. This was written um, as they've just celebrating They've just celebrated rebuilding Israel's wall. And listen to what it says. And they offered great sacrifices that day, and they rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great wall, with great joy, excuse me. It wasn't the wall that caused their joy. It wasn't the finished task that caused their joy. God caused their joy. God is the source of heavenly joy. And when God comes into your soul and he invites you to live in his presence and he makes his home in your heart, that's when joy arrives. It arrives because God comes in and he plants it in your heart and it's down in your heart to stay, just like the little song says. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always. Ladies, we can't be happy always. That's not possible because earthly things come and go. We can rejoice always, even in trying times, because God's work has set us free from captivity. It's set us free from sin slavery. It's given us a new identity forever. So I have to consider I've never been rescued from slavery in Babylon, but I know exactly what it's like to be rescued by God. And most of you know what that's like too, don't you? We were once held captives. We were enslaved to sin and the punishment for that. We were cut off from the presence, the blessing, the family of God forever. We were condemned to eternal separation from God until God's when happened. When God sent Jesus, he was the holy, perfect, sinless sacrifice. When Jesus hung on the cross, he bore our sin. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he won our victory. He won our freedom. Colossians 1.13 expresses that. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And he didn't just uh, secure our rescue. He secured that new identity for us as well. Look at Romans 1.15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. When God rescues us from sin's curse, when God sets us free from sin's slavery, when God gives us a new identity in his family, then we too are people of joy. That's my identity. That is your identity. All right, we're gonna pick... Pick the psalm back up in verse four here. Verse four says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. 
All right, restore our fortunes. We've changed tense again here. We started looking at the past, past tense. Then we moved to the present tense. We are, we are people of joy. And now we're shifting to the future. They aren't fully restored yet, but they want to be one day. They hope to be. They want the walls rebuilt. They want the temple restored. They want all those exiles that are still living in Babylon, captive. They want them to return. They want them to return like a flood of people filling all the streets into Jerusalem. That hasn't happened yet, but they're trusting in God's word that he would bring them back. And while they wait, what do they do? They pray. They're talking to God. They're asking God to help restore the fortunes again. They take their request to God, and you have to stop and think, well, he, that's a pretty good place to go with their request because they've just reminded themselves of all the great things God has already done. You know, you may have heard the wise advice, the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. They have just reminded themselves of God's great rescuing past behavior. They can trust that God will be constant. God says in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. His character and his nature don't change. So they can go to God with great confidence and take this request to him. They can have confidence because he's acted faithfully in the past. Now, this prayer, it is bold and it's confident. They're asking that their restoration would be like streams in the Negev like streams there. And that's figurative geographical language. We don't completely understand what that means, but an Israelite knew the Negev. They totally understood what this language meant. The Negev is the southern region of Israel. It's west of the Dead Sea. It's particularly arid, dry, parched. There is virtually no vegetation there whatsoever. If you've ever been to the Dead Sea, it looks very much like that area. It's craggy and cliff, uh, cliffy. The ground seems like hard, crumbly limestone, really. So I want you to imagine when rains do come in an area with no vegetation, no topsoil, and very low sea level. Think of heavy rains in Houston. Okay, that's the closest thing we have. You know what happens. When heavy rains come into areas like that, the waters rise quickly. They will rise quickly. Um, just last summer, there was some international news. You, you can Google this and see some interesting video of this that showed spring flash flooding, summer flash flooding in this exact area. And you see little trickles of streams that in moments become raging torrents of water. So seasonally, historically, these little streams in the Negev would go completely dry for very long periods of time until they would only be restored when these wild torrential spring rains would come and the floodwaters would dr flow dramatically through the land until even the smallest streams filled back up with water. So now can you see the confidence in their prayer when they ask God to fill uh, return them like streams in the Negev. It's as if they're saying, we're in a desert-like experience right now. We need some water, but we don't want a little sprinkle from heaven. We want you to send the wild, raging, torrential spring rains, Lord, that will replenish all the streams. They're asking for a great and a grand rescue. And why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they pray that way to God? They can have confidence because God has already shown them he is a great rescuing God. And the second reason they can have confidence, 
They are asking in line with what God has already declared and promised. They're asking for the will of God to be accomplished here. This is not a self-seeking, self-oriented, me-oriented prayer here. So we can learn a pattern from them. While we wait, we can pray with confidence when we remember the character and nature of our rescuing God. And we can pray with confidence when we pray that God will fulfill what he wants, what he's already promised to do. That's why we pray for God's will. They describe this request a little differently in verses five and six. Let's read that. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, he shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing sheaves with him. Okay, so now he switches from this geographical language to agricultural language. And most of us aren't farmers, but we understand the idea of sowing seeds and waiting and then reaping the harvest. When we see the words sowing and reaping, what comes to mind there is hard work, some labor. But when we see the words sowing with tears and weeping, that suggests difficult costly labor. That suggests maybe grief-filled labor. So this prayer is not a name it, claim it, comfort and ease kind of a request from God. And it's not um, an easy view of the future. And so we have to remember how bad the condition of the land was, how bad it was. It would take backbreaking work to turn over that hard, uncultivated ground. It would be strenuous and dangerous and difficult to rebuild the city walls. There would be obstacles and barriers and resistance, both from their enemies outside and from their own trouble stirred up within. There would be great cost and sacrifice. They know they're not asking for a a period of comfort and ease here. And you know, when you think about uh, this illustration of sowing seed, you have to also consider that they could take that seed and they could grind it into meal and they could feed their family with it. This was a time when Israel wasn't producing very much. So not to feed your family, but to take that valuable seed and instead put it in the ground and trust God and wait for it to bear fruit. That was an exercise of great trust in God. Anyone who plants a seed knows it's followed by a winter of waiting. And so that's what we're hearing expressed in this prayer right now. It's not at all a picture of hopeless despairing. It's a picture of persevering and persevering in joy because they know this is the middle of the story. The beginning of the story was beautiful. God showed himself to be a rescuing God. We know how the story's going to end because God has told us what he's going to do. So they can persevere and they can labor and they can do these difficult things because God is reminding them it's just the middle of the story. While they wait, they're willing to work. This is a great message for us. They're willing to work. They aren't demanding that God just miraculously produce this restored land here, but instead they're trusting God to bring about his will through their labor. And that's still how God works today. He brings about his will through our labor, through our toil, and through our patient waiting. And we just have to know that it takes time. We plant the seeds and it takes time. You know, years ago, my sons and I moved to a new home and I'd specifically asked God for a few things in this home. I asked that it would have the potential for a beautiful backyard and garden because I am a gardener. 
Now, if I ever move again, I will drastically change my prayer. I will pray for an existing beautiful backyard and garden because God answered my prayer and he gave me a ton of potential. Um, Our new home had a backyard that opened to parkland, which was amazing, but it had been left uncultivated for so many years. There wasn't a single blade of grass in our big backyard. There were just waist-high weeds. There were the biggest fire ant mounds you have ever seen, and it was all rocky, clay-filled soil. And it was going to take a lot of work to bring it back. My dad and I tackled that project like any good gardener would. We killed all those weeds, and we killed those ants first. We did the backbreaking work to till the ground, and then we brought in truckloads and truckloads of good fertile dirt. And we spread that dirt all over the yard. And then because we were on a budget, we planted grass seed. Now, the only problem with this great plan was we did all of that in September, and the seed was not going to sprout until spring. What follows was certainly the wettest fall and winter in Fort Worth's history. And just to get a little more of your sympathy, let me remind you, I had three boys and a dog. It was the winter of my great despair. I would look out at that muddy mess day after day after day. I had a mud-caked patio. I had little sneakers covered and caked in mud. I had muddy footprints all around the back door. I had a muddy dog. The boys got industrious and found little scraps of plywood and laid them out in the yard and would hop from one piece of wood to another as they took the dog in and out. And in despair, I would look out at that and say, this is my life, one perpetual mud pit. And then I would remember, this is the middle of the story. Spring is coming. Spring is coming. There's a great gardener's quote, how bleak is the winter landscape to him who's never seen the promise of spring. And that is true, isn't it? God is faithful. Spring eventually comes. A joy-filled person can persevere and they can labor hard knowing it's the middle of the story and God's future promises are coming. So Israel could till the ground and plant the seed and they could wait and know that in that long winter, they would see no signs of life. But that doesn't mean that God isn't working deep under the ground. We know how the seed comes to life, don't we? We know that it's buried deep in the dark underground and slowly the hard exterior shell begins to break but no one sees it happening. And then the rains come, and that keeps the seed alive, and it begins to germinate. And then the sun comes and warms the ground, and that does more work for that little seed. And then the seed begins to sprout, and all of that happens under the ground with no one seeing anything. Until one glorious day when one little green shoot breaks through the mud and the dirt. Promise. God answers his promises. Israel could pray with joy. They could labor and persevere with joy, and we can too. What I learned from this is that our waiting time doesn't have to be lazy, wasted time, not for them and not for us. You know, this made me think we don't sit on our couch and hope that our friend in the hospital will feel encouraged. We get up and we go to the hospital and we pray with her and we share encouraging words with her, right? 
We labor, we invest. We don't sit on our couch and hope that the gospel will spread through the whole earth. No, we go on mission trips, we send people, we fund missionaries, send them to the remotest parts of the earth, and we look for opportunities right here to share the gospel. The amazing thing is God works through our effort and our labor. We serve as his ambassadors, but we must be willing to work. That's exactly what Israel had to do here. They're willing to work, but their work isn't a chore, it's a joy. It's a joy because they are part of God's story. The message here is that God will reward the laborer. He will reward the laborer as surely as the seed breaks through the dirt and produces a crop. The labor will not be in vain. So we really see hope in this prayer. Um, you have to search for it a little bit, but there are two references to joy here in these last few verses. It says, after bearing seed, the farmer will come home once again with joy in his mouth, the fullness of joy coming out of his mouth. And it tells us he'll come home bearing, carrying one little measly stalk of corn. No, it says he's going to be carrying sheaves, big bundles, multiple big bundles. This is a picture of God's abundant fruitfulness. When God rescues and we persevere and labor and joy, God will cause fruit to bear from our labor. It's a great picture of the waiting time. For us, God has set us free from sin's curse, but while we wait for Jesus' return, there will be work for us to do, just like Israel. People of joy can persevere because we have confidence that God is going to finish the job, and we have joy that fuels our, our labor. The joy provides our energy for us. I think that's why Paul writes to the Galatians, Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. And he writes to the Philippians in Philippians 1, 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So when we talk to God like this, it's like we're making a pledge and a promise to God. We're declaring our intention that we're willing to labor and we're willing to wait and we're willing to offer costly sacrifice when necessary. And we'll do all of that in confidence and in trust because God has filled us with joy. He's already done that for us. So if you are a follower of Jesus, like I am, God has already given you joy. It's complete, it's already done. He's given it to you and I like to think of it as the brightest, shiniest moment of your life. He gave you that and he let you tuck it down into your heart to keep it forever, it's deposited there. But for me, I let the burdens and the worries and the difficulties and the inconveniences of this life come in like clouds and just start casting a shadow over this bright, shiny moment. I let all these little things dull my joy, overshadow my joy, and I think it's like letting chickens peck me to death. They shouldn't have any power over me, they're chickens, but I let them steal my joy, don't I? I think for all of us, we can learn from this psalm that we have joy, we just need to own it. We need to own our joy and get in touch with it. We can talk to God on our journey, just like the Israelites did, and I think we can stir up the joy he's put deep down inside us. And I think for me, that's sort of the way I push those dark clouds away. 
So for me, I've resolved I'm going to look to the past with joy, and I'm going to talk to God about that. We can remember and reflect and talk to God about the many ways he's rescued us, the initial way he rescued us from sin, but then the other rescues that have come since, the, the besetting sins that he breaks us free from, the wounds that he heals, all these great rescue experiences we've had with God. You know, when I think about my conversion story, it's not a dramatic, vivid story. I was five years old. Um, I don't have a great sense that it was this terrible life God pulled me out of. But if I'm honest and I really consider what happened to that five-year-old, it's a dramatic story. And so what I do, I'm trying to stir up the vivid memory of what really happened. And here's how I imagine it today. I envision myself locked in a dark prison cell, guilty and condemned of a terrible crime. And every day, an angry guard comes in and beats me as part of my punishment. Until one fateful day, I hear the door unlock, it swings open, and that angry guard has been replaced by a merciful savior. And he doesn't come in to beat me, he holds his hand out, and he offers to take me out. And I step out of that prison cell holding Jesus' hand, and I feel the sun on my face, and I breathe in the fresh air, and just like Israel, I think, this must be a dream. It's too good to be true. But I know it's not a dream, because as I hold his hand, I feel his wounds, and I know he took the penalty, he took the beatings that I deserved. And I say to God, you have done great things for me, and I am filled with joy. That changes the whole rest of my prayer when I begin that way. As I talk to God about the rescue, I am reminded he has filled my cup with joy. I cannot hold another drop. He's given me all that I'll ever need. Sometimes I just have to stir it up again and remember it. I also think that God's rescue comes with so many great heavenly gifts. When we talk to God, we need to remember the heavenly gifts. We need to remind God that we're aware of them. We need to thank him for them. Remember, these are the unchanging, secure uh, gifts that he's given us forever. You might consider meditating on Ephesians 1 if you need to be reminded of your heavenly gifts. I'm gonna share some of those with you right now. God has chosen you. He's adopted you, he's redeemed you, he has forgiven you. He's created an inheritance that's eternal for you. He's guarding it for you forever. He has already lavished you with mercy, grace, and love that can never be undone. Those are heavenly blessings that God has given you. When we meditate on those things, when we thank God for those things, we're unleashing our joy. We're letting it stir up. We can also find ways for our joy to be expressed and observed in the world. You know, God uses all of our labor to draw people to himself. God works in our joyful praising. I had a great opportunity just in this last week. Um, a businesswoman I'd been dealing with for several weeks called and told me we'd kind of had a catastrophic problem. I had made a mistake and she had made a mistake and it was going to cost one of us a good bit of money. 
and I was pretty frustrated. We ended the phone call, and I just started praying. And I'll admit, I, I wasn't praying for a rescue. I was just asking God to show me how to be gracious in this setting. 30 minutes later, she called me back and said, I have great news. The manufacturer sent us a flawed product. We can get your money back and start over. No one will ever know we've made a mistake. And she said to me, you really have favor and grace on you. God had created the perfect opportunity for me to praise him. The only imperfect thing there was me, because I didn't say it. I didn't say it. I could have said, I just prayed about this. God is answering my prayer, and I wasn't ready to express it. I shared this with one of my sons, and he said, oh, mom, epic fail. <laughs> so I'm pledging to you in front of witnesses, I'm going to be ready next time. Be ready. Find ways to express your joy. They can't observe it if you don't express it. That's a great thing we can do to stir our joy. And as you pray, tell God your commitment to persevere, to labor, to work. Don't expect an effortless road. Know that joy will fuel your labor. So as we leave, let's just remember we were all created to enjoy and glorify God. And that can happen because he has put his joy down deep inside of us. We need to look back and remember he's the source of our joy. We need to look forward to joy's future promised outcome. And the outcome is this, we will be with the Lord forever. That's in our future. And while we wait, let joy be the energy that keeps us going. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are a God who rescues and blesses, and we have that rescue. So we're in awe of your generous love for us. We just thank you. Thank you for giving us all the joy we could ever hold. Lord, I just pray that we will steward that joy well, Lord. Let us not lose sight of it. Help us remember all that you have done for us and all that you are promising to do, Lord, and let our joy spill out. That's the desire of our heart, and we want it for your glory and for your praise in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.